All right, we are back. We talked a little bit about some uh, criminal activity uh, of a humorous nature as we close. Let's start with one that's uh, not humorous at all. There's a government program out there called PACE, Property Assessed Clean Energy Loans. This apparently allows certain energy entities out there to do for the homeowner what Enron did to California 20 years ago. Article about the PACE program by Amita Sharma in Cal Matters notes the following. Elderly homeowners who have built a sizable nest egg over many years are being targeted by financial lenders to take energy-efficient home improvement loans that become impossible to repay. Homeowners across California have complained to prosecutors and legal aid groups about the so-called property-assessed clean energy loans. Thousands of PACE borrowers have said they did not understand the terms of the loans and cannot afford to pay them back, according to consumer advocacy groups. They cite Robert Unzer, a 74-year-old cancer survivor who now has cognitive disabilities, lives in San Diego. He has four PACE loans and four liens on his house. He survives on $11,000 a year in Social Security income, but because of the PACE loans, he's seen his annual property tax payments jump from $300 to $17,000. This program dates back to 2008. It was set up supposedly to help private property owners who are 55 and older finance energy-efficient and renewable energy improvements. Legislation allowing PACE loans has been approved in 33 states, including California and the District of Columbia. Concerns about the first liens and inability for some owners to repay the loans has been raised by Congress and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. The article quotes California Attorney General Xavier Becerra saying the elderly are easy targets for unscrupulous lending. They're essentially sitting on a gold mine. Chances are they probably paid off most of the mortgage and so they have a great amount of equity in their homes. San Diego County Prosecutor Valerie Tanney said repayment of PACE loans through property taxes backed by liens puts the elderly especially at risk. Research into what Mr. Unzer's PACE loans uh, were all about showed they were finalized with electronic signatures on documents sent to non-existent email accounts. Unzer doesn't have an email address, an internet connection, or cell phone. They literally made up a fake email address for him. You may want to read up on this. Amita Sharma, who wrote this, is a reporter for KPBS, and her report was part of the California Dream Series, a statewide media collaboration of CalMatters, KPBS, KPCC, KQED, and Capital Public Radio, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the James Irvine Foundation. And one thing you better watch out for in 2019 is the economy. Beware article we have from the New York Times one month ago, Robert Schiller, noting that the housing boom is already gigantic and asks how long can it last. You know, the punchline to all of it is, uh, well, it, it, it may not last much longer. And, of course, the housing market is tied up with the stock market, and those of you who are old enough to remember what happened 10 years ago in 2008 may be feeling a bit nervous at the moment. You may want to look up the George Will piece from last year titled, Those Who See No Lehman-Like Event Ahead Didn't See Last One. George Will, by the way, has long been a conservative commentator in this country, a a staunch backer of the Republican Party. And apparently, uh, after taking a good hard look at Donald Trump's Republican Party, George Will has jumped ship. Will, of course, in this piece was referring to America's longest bull run. Well, actually, I'm not positive that it is the longest, but a 10-year run is a good run. And that's what they claim we've had. Although many would point out this economic boom we've seen over the past decades. Um, 
seems to have benefited a rather small number of investors. We'll close the piece with some surprising words for someone who's a noted conservative. Will said, despite today's shrill political discord, the political class is more united by class interest than its interest in ideology. From left to right, this class has a permanent incentive to run enormous deficits, to charge through taxation current voters significantly less than the cost of the government goods and services they consume, and saddle future voters with the cost of servicing the resulting debt after the current crop of politicians has left the scene. What did Donald Trump say in the campaign? He would balance the budget like in the first, what, day or week or whatever as he went about and <laughs> raised the national debt a trillion dollars with the help of his Republican cronies. They did cut tax revenues significantly. They did not decrease government spending significantly. This is not something unique to Donald Trump and the Republicans. It goes back decades, but the difference between what they say they're going to do and what they're now doing is just more hypocritical than ever. The weird thing is, I think there are a lot of people out there that, that imagine that, that Trump really is balancing the budget. He's doing what he said he would do. After all, he said he was going to build a wall and Mexico was going to pay for it, and now he's shutting down the federal government because they're not giving him money to pay for it. Not the Mexican government, the American government. And here's a crime story we have some mixed feelings about. As reported on this program many times, and, and undoubtedly before we close today, uh, there's some concern over the power that's being accrued by various Silicon Valley companies, tech companies. They're not all in Silicon Valley. So we were a little concerned when we found out that not only does Google know everything about us in terms of our electronic communications, that the company 23andMe, which is amassing genetic data all across the country, is owned by Larry Page's wife. What could possibly go wrong? Now, we're grateful for the fact that uh, genetic technology has allowed police to catch up with, incarcerate, and I suppose one of these days prosecute the Golden State Killer. Oh, by the way, he's been declared legally indigent, and you and I and everybody else in California is going to have to pick up the tab for the expected $20 million in legal expenses. I mean, if they ever get around to prosecuting him, I, th I, think, I think that's in the works. He was arrested, what, last April? And although we're not crack legal authorities, it, it would be our guess that, you know, when your DNA turns up at like half dozen or dozen different crime scenes, it's probably a pretty strong case. But how about this story about a cold case cracked by DNA evidence? About five years ago, some police authorities were checking out the France Bakery outlet up in Bellingham, Washington. The police questioned Timothy Bass about his daily routes from decades earlier. Evidently, some years later, a co-worker got around to asking why that was. When they found out that Bass was a suspect in the 1989 rape and murder of 18-year-old Mandy Stavik, one of the region's most infamous unsolved crimes, she got to thinking, you know, about the fact that she had a daughter herself. For her daughter, who had been viciously killed, and she wondered why wouldn't somebody want to do whatever they could. So in this case, doing whatever you could constituted getting a sample of what Mr. Bass had eaten or drunk. In 2017, the co-worker watched Bass toss out a plastic cup and a Coke can. She secretly grabbed both and uh, put them in a bag and handed them over to police. When the results came back from the state crime lab, Bass's DNA from the soda and cup were a 1 in 11 quadrillion match to DNA recovered from the woman. Bass got arrested and was charged with first-degree murder. 
For the past year, Bass's lawyers have argued, uh, not that he's innocent, but that uh, the DNA match was the result of an illegal search. The defense motion said, put simply, law enforcement officers cannot use private citizens to obtain evidence without a search warrant where a search warrant would otherwise be required. So the question comes, was it this co-worker's idea to do this, or did the police solicit her help in doing this? And apparently this fine legal distinction will hinge the entire case of whether a one to quadrillion DNA match for a murderer will allow him to be held accountable. There was evidently a lot of evidence uh, back in the day that uh, this guy was the prime suspect. They just didn't quite have enough on him. Well, it seems that now they do. But the whole case is going to hinge on whether or not the suspect's Fourth Amendment rights might have been violated. I don't know. From what I've seen, if rocketry in this country were as advanced as our legal system, I think we could look forward to every rocket pretty much exploding right there on the pad. And by the way, this coming Sunday night, rocket launch in Vandenberg Air Force Base is set to go forward. And uh, again, we suggest that you may want to go out and take a look to the southwest about launch time, which I think is just after sunset. You might, might get quite a show. Well, they keep postponing this damn thing, and we keep forward promoting it, and, uh, well, I will, we'll just hope for the best. And no, Radio Parallax has no information that the people at Vandenberg are being advised by lawyers. We're probably going to close this show with another look at tech, some of the bad stuff related to tech, because, God, someone seems to have to do this. But before we do that, let's, um, let's take a look back at uh, some whimsical articles from last year. This one makes me laugh. According to New Scientist magazine, if humans vanish... One of the most enduring records of our time on Earth will be the sudden upsurge in the fossil record of chicken bones. Geologists have proposed that the age of humans constitutes a new epoch in Earth's history known as the Anthropocene. The explosion in chicken farming and the rapid change in the bones of birds because of selective breeding makes their remains an ideal sign of our times. Karis Bennett at the University of Leicester, UK, says this will eventually result in a layer of fossils that are indicative of our existence. Yes, chicken bones. Which, what, makes Colonel Sanders one of the most important figures of our era? And in other strange geological news, we have this. NASA's visit to the asteroid Bennu has revealed that it's full of water. It's covered in boulders, and it's riddled with caves. Those are the first findings from the OSIRIS-REx mission to Bennu is turning out to be a lot less dense than expected, indicating that it is very porous. Up to 40% of its volume may be pores and caves. The first measurement of the asteroid's composition, and we want to know what it's made of because it comes pretty close to Earth like a lot of them do, and we need to know how these things are put together if we have to stop one one day. Much of its surface is covered in hydrated minerals, rocks with water locked into their structure. That's a good sign for asteroid mining. Water is expected to be one of the most in-demand products out in space. Someone told the L.A. Metropolitan Water District about this? All right, we like topics in health and science, and we have to laugh at uh, that annual summary of some of the things they said were good for us and some of the things we were told to avoid. This particular collection comes from the week. Among the things that were said to be good for us, and I have to laugh at this one, is... Full-fat dairy products, <laughs> which may help protect against heart disease and stroke, contrary to what you've been hearing for the past 40 years. 
Researchers examined data from more than 130,000 people across 21 countries over nine years. Participants who ate two or more daily servings of full-fat dairy, a serving was eight ounces of milk or yogurt or a half ounce of cheese, had 22% lower risk of heart disease, 34% lower risk of stroke, and 23% lower risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. Now, four decades ago, fat was public enemy number one, which is why in every dairy case you see scads of volumes of low-fat milk, non-fat milk, skim milk, low-fat this, non-fat that. The reason was that fat was public enemy number one. It promoted cardiovascular disease. Might cause you to have a heart attack or stroke, except it turns out that perhaps the opposite is true. This is one reason, ladies and gentlemen, that I don't do a lot of nutritional stuff on this show. It seems the data isn't as good as it should be and, and never has been, frankly. We're still trying to figure out in medicine what we should all eat. Now, it turns out that one thing perhaps we should eat more of is turmeric. It's alleged to improve memory and ease depression among those with age-related mental decline. Researchers recruited 40 volunteers last year. They were aged 50 to 90, all with memory complaints, but none with dementia. Half took curcumin, an active compound in the Indian spice turmeric, twice a day for 18 months, while the other half got placebo. Those taking the curcumin saw a 28% improvement in memory function. That's a small study and a small result, but it's interesting. And when it comes to organic foods, there's some evidence now they may reduce cancer risk. For almost five years, researchers in France regularly asked nearly 70,000 volunteers how often they ate organic fruit, vegetables, meat, and other products. During that period, a quarter of participants who ate the most organic foods were 25% less likely to get cancer than the quarter who ate the least, even after accounting for age, and also income, and also other risk factors. Now, it turns out this may have nothing to do with the food itself, per se, but perhaps with the fact that organic foods have lower levels of pesticides, which do mimic hormones in our body and do increase our cancer risks. Whatever the reason, it does make sense to uh, eat organic and not um, things that have been drenched in bug killer. And rounding out the list of things that might be good for us, we have holding hands. <laughs> University of Colorado Boulder study of just 22 women, which were subject to mild pain. They noted that when a male partner was holding their hand and when he was not, the women reported that holding hands reduced the intensity of the pain by an average of 34%. So ladies, if your man forces you to go out to the cinema and see a movie featuring The Rock, just make sure he holds your hand. All right, among things we've been told to avoid, there are ties. They apparently constrict blood flow to the vein. At least a German research team, after asking 15 men to put on a tie and make a Windsor knot, then undergo three MRI scans with their collars open and tie loose, with the tie straightened to the point of slight discomfort, and then with it loose again. Well, after doing all that, the scans showed that a tightly secured necktie reduces blood flow to the brain by an average of 7.5%. That seems like a pretty silly study to me, but, you know, as someone who hates ties, I'm cheering these guys on. I always appreciated the fact that the island nation of Kiribati banned the tie as an instrument of Western oppression. There's a study out showing that staying up late might reduce your lifespan. Researchers tracked 430,000 adults for seven years 
and found the night owls had a 10% greater risk of early death than those who woke up early. Well, being something of a night owl myself, I hope that's wrong. And you drink bottled water? Most of us do. Turns out bottled water almost always contains microplastics. A study of 259 water bottles from the U.S. and eight other countries found that 93% were contaminated with pieces of plastic. Now, there seems to be some doubt. The report I'm reading says 5 millimeters long. They must mean 5 microns long. At any rate, researchers found an average of 10 plastic particles per liter of water. They remain unsure of how or when this contamination occurs and how it affects the body when you drink it. Great. All right, new scientists are looking forward to our upcoming year, 2019. Note that it may be a bad year for believing what you see. The magazine points out that it's only a matter of time before an AI-powered fake video sparks a political crisis. So-called deep fakes leapt ahead in quality this year, making it even easier to fool people. Academics are now betting on when the first fake video scandal will occur. All right, let's talk about this. Apparently, Roy Orbison gave a concert in L.A. last month, which is unusual because he died 30 years ago. Roy appeared in hologram form. Yes, as technology is evolving, it becomes easier to create three-dimensional, lifelike visuals of artists. And uh, during this concert, I guess they showed a lot of pictures of Roy, and then at one point, he appeared to rise magically from the stage wearing his signature light gray suit and black shades and jamming on a red Gibson guitar to his hit, Only the Lonely. And yeah, apparently 30 years after his death, Roy Orbison is on a national tour. Or at least this holographic version of him is. This is prompting some celebrities to... uh add language to their contracts about holograms, and to be more meticulous about selecting who is in charge of their estates. There's a piece in the New Yorker, November 12th issue of last year by Joshua Rothman, that asked, now that everything can be faked, how will we know what's real? We talked about this last November. Scientists studying cameras using AI were able to guess how images that were incomplete, pixels that were not showing the detail they required to make an ID like on a license plate, might be able to make better guesses by taking lots and lots of images and applying AI. And guess what? Up to a point, it works. Evidently, the previous year, an anonymous person on Reddit with the username DeepFakes released a software toolkit which allows anyone to make synthetic videos in which a neural network substitutes one person's face from another while keeping their expressions consistent. Along with the kit, the user posted pornographic videos now known as DeepFakes that appear to feature various Hollywood actresses superimposed upon the bodies of porn stars. Any of you who saw Star Wars The Last Jedi or Blade Runner 2049, and we kind of hope you didn't see the latter, uh, will note that, well, they've gotten really, really good at creating recreations of people. And guess what? Today's smartphones digitally manipulate even ordinary snapshots, often using neural networks. The iPhone's portrait mode simulates what a photograph would have looked like if it had been taken by a more expensive camera. This stuff has come a long way from Stalinist Russia where they used to airbrush people they didn't like out of the various official photographs. In 1982, a composite photograph of John Kerry and Jane Fonda standing together, supposedly at an anti-Vietnam demonstration, incensed many voters 
after the New York Times credulously reprinted it in 2004, above a story about Kerry's anti-war activities. The article notes that just north of Berkeley, a 43-year-old computer scientist named Alexei Efros, who moved to the U.S. in 89, when his father, a winner of the USSR's top prize for theoretical physics, got a job at UC Riverside, has himself developed an interest uh, in AI and um, computer graphics, which caused him to develop a system called texture synthesis. This would lead eventually to a tool in Adobe Photoshop called content-aware fill. You can delete someone from a pile of leaves, and then new leaves will seamlessly fill in the gap. These guys have gotten so good they can take a synthetic version of Tom Hanks' face and at a mouse click express various emotions. The researchers use publicly available images of Hanks to create three-dimensional model or mesh of his face onto which they projected his characteristic expressions. This has gotten very good. And such individuals these days have access to systems like ImageNet, run by computer scientists at Stanford and Princeton, which brings together 14 million photographs of ordinary places and objects, most of them casual snapshots posted to Flickr, eBay, and other websites, sorted them into categories, and they use neural networks to seamlessly work this way into like clips of people opening packages, peering into fridges, drying off with towels. A vast archive of uninteresting photos has made a new level of synthetic realism possible. One nice thing about all of this is that it's so bloody sophisticated that they're better than ever at detecting fakes, although we have heard that you can now make untraceable fakes. I'm not sure where the truth lies. The truth may lie in the fact that with really intricate analysis, they can find out where things have been faked and then fix it. So when do we get to the point where we just aren't sure what's real and what's fake? Recall that in 2016, when the Access Hollywood tape surfaced, Donald Trump acknowledged its accuracy while dismissing his statements as locker room talk. Later, Trump suggested to associates that, we don't think that was my voice. This leads us to three articles we don't have time to go over, but we will in the future. Two of them are the last word sections from our old standby the week. One titled, Nothing on This Page is Real, with the subheadline, A Liberal Blogger feeds right-wing conspiracy theorists with blatant falsehoods, earning up to $15,000 a month doing so. And one titled From Russia with Love, with the subheadline, a potent Kremlin propaganda machine seeks to make ordinary citizens lose faith in the very idea of truth. These we should talk about, along with the nymag.com piece titled How Much of the Internet is Fake? Turns out, a lot of it is, actually. It's like what the Moody Blues once asked, what is real and what's an illusion? We've got to talk about this more in the future, but given only three or four minutes left, I'm going to close with this. In our opinion, tech addiction is real. People really are tech addicts. At least some people are. And so it should come as no surprise that there's eventually going to become a 12-step treatment method for tech addiction. Article by Martha Irvine in the East Bay Times notes the following. The young men sit in chairs in a circle in a small meeting room in suburban Seattle and introduce themselves before they speak. It is much like any other 12-step meeting, but with a twist. Hi, my name is blank. Each begins then something like, and I'm an internet and tech addict. The eight who have gathered here are beset 
by a level of tech obsession that's different than it is for those of us who like to say we're addicted to our phones or an app or some new show on a streaming video service. For them, tech gets in the way of daily functioning and self-care. We're talking flunking your classes, can't find a job, live in a dark hole kinds of problems with depression, anxiety, and sometimes suicidal thoughts part of the mix. I don't think this is far-fetched. I don't think this should surprise anyone. I try to work out in my gym, and it seems every other person is on their cell phone. They're working out, and they're looking at their cell phone. They're actually sitting there on the exercise machines, not exercising, but looking at their cell phone. I'm sure if you go on YouTube, you can pull up rather humorous videos of people walking into walls, falling down manhole covers, you know, slipping into puddles of water uh, because they're looking down at their phone. They're captured on, like, surveillance cameras. The article notes this is kind of a taboo subject in an industry that frequently faces criticism for using quote, persuasive design, unquote, intentionally harnessing psychological concepts to make tech all the more enticing, all the more addicting, I'd say. For the article, a 27-year-old who works at a tech company spoke on condition of anonymity. He fears that speaking out could hurt his fledgling career. I stay in the tech industry because I truly believe that technology can help other people, the young man said. He wants to do good. But as his co-workers huddle nearby talking excitedly about their latest video game exploits, he puts on his headphones hoping to block the frequent topic of conversation in this technocentric part of the world. The demons are not so easy to wrestle for this young man. He graduated in 2016 and moved home. Each day he'd go to a nearby restaurant or the library to use the Wi-Fi, claiming he was looking for a job but having no luck. Instead, he was spending hours on Reddit, an online forum where people share news and comments or view YouTube videos. Even now, his mom doesn't know that he lied. I still need to apologize for that, he says quietly. The apologies will come later, in step nine of his 12-step program. This really strikes home to me. I have good friends that appear to be crippled by their reliance on the world they find in the Internet. They are not so well connected to the non-internet world, and it's causing them problems. Let's just leave it at that. He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't have a point of this program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and we'll see you next week when we have, we'll have some things to say, I think, about the Kuiper Belt. See